delight to be back with you while Mark is absent. I uh, honestly, I, I, I'm very humbled by this opportunity because Mark is really the greatest Bible teacher that I know, and I would rather hear him than anybody else, even myself, uh, because I already know what I'm going to say, basically. But uh, I would rather hear him. He's a tremendous teacher, but I am honored to be able to stand in his, his place today as part of the biblical literacy. And I look forward to sharing with you just a few things, uh, you know, from the scriptures today. And a, an important passage. And it's a passage, I think, that is often misstated and misunderstood. But I think when we really dig down deep into the text itself, we can figure out what Jesus was trying to say. Uh, when he made a statement, and he obviously didn't say it in, in English, but he said it uh, in Aramaic, but it comes across something like this, judge not that ye be not judged. Has anybody ever said that to you? Have you ever said that to anybody else? Probably have, yeah. And we always say it in the King James. I don't know why. I think we love the King James. Judge not. You shouldn't judge that person. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't do that. Well, it, Let's take a look today at what Jesus was really uh, trying to say through that. I want to start, if we can get this going, with a, a, a book that I would recommend that you read and take a look at. It's probably around, it's, it's a book called Unchristian. And the subtitle, it's too small to read, but let me read it for you. Uh, the subtitle is What a New Generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. Now, the new generation that they were surveying, and these are social scientists, the, the, the group they were surveying were 16 to 29-year-olds. Okay, that's, keep that in mind, 16 to 20. Now, this is a few years old, so these folks would be up in their 30s now, a lot of them, and some of them 20. Now, the two researchers, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons, from different projects. Now, what they... What they what they suppose that they would have gotten into and what they, uh, a lot of social science begins with a hunch. I have a hunch that this is probably true. And they begin researching it and figuring out how they can measure it and all those kind of things. Uh, very important kind of study. But their, their initial sort of hunch was that Christianity has an image problem. Okay. But when they got into it and they began really looking at it and surveying people inside and outside the church, they realized that the church has a real problem. Not just an image problem, but a real problem. Let me show you the next slide. It's a little bit fuzzy. I'm sorry for that. It's the only way I could get it, get it to you. But I can help, for those of you particularly in the back, clarify this. They, on, on this side, all the way on this side, is a perception that people have about Christianity and Christians. And in the middle column is what outsiders are saying. This is the group, again, of 16 to 29-year-olds and their perception about Christianity. And that's the inside. Now, and on the far column to the right is what churchgoers or people who are inside the church think about various issues. Now, we can't do all these today. I'm, I'm going to just pick on one of them, but the, some of them are related. The very first one says, the perception is that Christianity and Christians are anti-homosexual. 91% of outsiders say that about Christians, but 80%, now this is what's interesting, 80% of people inside say that. 
And this, by the way, is about being against the person, not necessarily the, the social practice, which is a part of the dynamic. The second is judgmental. 87% of outsiders say that Christians are judgmental. Notice how that drops among insiders, 52%. 52% of insiders say, and this is a majority of people in the church say, yes, we are judgmental. Yes, by and large. Now that means a lot aren't, believe that we aren't, but a number believe that we are. Third, hypocritical. 85% say the church is hypocritical. I actually think, by the way, that that can be a, a little bit of a compliment. Uh-oh, I forgot my book down there. I'm going to have to go get my book. 85% say that it's, it's a bit of a compliment in a way. I'll, I'll hopefully be able to tell you a little bit about that. But 85% say that the church does not live up to its standards, but it recognizes that we do have standards, even if we fail to live up to them. Not every group has standards. On the inside, 47%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Think we're old-fashioned. 36% insiders. Too involved in politics, 75%. Only 50% of those on the inside. Out of touch with reality. What's going on in the world? We are out of touch. Outsiders say 72%. Survey says... Churchgoers, 32%. And then insensitivity toward others, particularly people of other faith, 70% outsiders, 28% of insiders. Well, there's quite, a, there's quite a, a difference between the two. And the one that I really want to focus on today is that second one, the perception or the reality that you and I and we are judgmental. Outsiders, 87% say yes, we are judgmental. But on the inside, only 52%. Well, what I want to do today is to spend a little time with a key text in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus preached. It is the, it is the uh, Oscar Brooks calls it kind of the inaugural address of Jesus. When Jesus first stands up to teach, it's the most complete and and it gathers together lots of things that I think Jesus said on a number of occasions, but it pulls it all together into this beautiful sermon uh, that has very, it begins with the Beatitudes, it ends with the, the two ways, but right in the middle of the sermon is this particular text. And I'd like for us to read. I think it's big enough for everybody to say, oh, but it is. I'm gonna read it to you still anyways. My translation is not any particular translation says this, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment, uh-oh, are you measuring? I'm missing something down here. But with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you measure will be you, the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. 
That whole thing is the pericope, is the teaching, and it all relates together, it all hangs together, it all depends one on the other. Do not, it's best not to cite one verse out of a pericope and make that the totalizing verse, that this governs everything. Everything must be measured against this. No, that's not really the right, it's just part of it. We've got to read the whole thing. Every text, a friend of mine says it this way, without a context is a pretext. With a subtext that, well, never mind. Kind of get going. But anyway, read the verse in context. And it's in the context of a particular wisdom formula that Jesus used to teach and that people use to memorize. Remember, nobody is sitting listening to Jesus teach, taking notes and doing transcriptions at the time. He said things more than once, to be sure, but they heard it and heard it again, and pretty soon they were able to memorize it because there was a formula in their head for what was happening here, and we can memorize formulas much easier than just random words. And I'll show you the formula here in just a minute because Jesus uses it on a number of occasions. We see it also in other wisdom texts from the same period of time. But that's the text that I want us to think about. The whole of it, not just one verse. Now here, here is um, the, the question. When Jesus said, judge not, did he mean don't form an opinion or a judgment? An opinion is just a judgment on something. I have a particular opinion about abortion we'll talk about later. And that particular opinion is uh, not favorable to it. I have thought about it. I have looked at it. I've made a judgment. I speak about it. I've written about it. I could never be elected to office. I'll be voted out very quickly because of those kind of sentiments, at least by, by a number of people. But I have an opinion. I have thought about that. And all of us probably do. And it could be about this or that or some other topic. But we, we, we've all formed judgments. That, I don't think, is Jesus is not saying, now don't form judgments about stuff. Just kind of keep your head and keep, keep it in neutral. Don't go forward. Don't go backward. Don't go sideways. Just keep everything in neutral. Don't, don't ha- I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't express it. Maybe you can form it, but just don't express it. Don't tell anybody about it. Don't express a judgment. Keep it to yourself. Is that what Jesus is doing? Working on a book called um, Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes. I think I mentioned that last time. And the key idea of the book is very simple. Is if we really knew the Old Testament well, how would we read the New Testament better? And my contention is we don't know the Old Testament very well. We know, we know parts of it. We know stories from it. But there are a lot of ins and outs. And Mark has done a marvelous job in his book on uh, kind of d- daily devotions from Torah to help us kind of read and engage that material. I hope you have that book. I hope you read that book and use it as a type of that. But I, w- I want to show you a text from uh, the book of Deuteronomy that I think underscores what Jesus, or at least it sort of, gives an Old Testament background to what's going on here. And here it is. It's right here. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. I should do my nails, I think. I really need to do it. Anybody have any clippers? I'm a guitar player, so they get in the way when you play guitar. But here's, here's the thing that I want to show you, about, show you what, that God said, and this is to the people of Israel, the God's people, 
And I don't think God changes. I don't think he's sort of different then and than he is now, but he has kind of the same opinion. He says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all the towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to the tribe. So every tribe and every town is to set up justices and judges and basically establish courts of justice. And when you do that, somebody has to make a judgment. Somebody has to rule one way or another. Somebody has to decide what's fair. Somebody has to decide that this is in keeping with the law or this is not in keeping with the law. In other words, you have to express, you have to discern. You shall not pervert justice, that key word. And at the heart of that word is is the sense of judgment. Your judgment should not be perverted. You will not show partiality. You don't favor this group over another group. You don't favor the rich over the poor. You don't favor this or that. You don't favor your family. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Those words justice and righteousness are twins throughout the scripture. We see it in the book of Amos, let justice roll down like waters, let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And here's the sort of punchline of this pericope. I don't really like this translation as much. I sort of like the older translation, but it's basically this. Justice and only justice shall you follow. And here's the promise, that you live long in the land. I hope you can see that, that the Lord your God is giving you. One translation says, justice, justice shall you pursue. I like that. It's a very powerful way of saying it. Pursue justice. You cannot pursue justice without making judgments. And we all make judgments. I have particular judgments about sex trafficking. I've written about it. I've talked about it. We probably all share that, but we have decided, and maybe we say it is wrong, it is absolutely wrong, it should be fought, it should be countered in every way we can possible. But we've made a judgment, we've expressed that judgment. That's not the issue. So what is Jesus on about here? Well, here's the, uh, come back over here to the computer, and I hopefully this thing will work. You notice that Jesus... <laughs> If you're not supposed to sort of judge, Jesus almost immediately violates that by in the next verse, he says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not give what is holy to dogs, lest they turn upon you, trample you, and attack you. He's not talking about farm animals. Some people are like dogs. Some people are like swine. They will attack you if you take that which is holy and give it to them. Be careful. He's already told them in the sermon that you're going to be persecuted. Your your name is going to be reviled. Just get ready for it. But he's saying be careful when you present that which is holy. The whole background of that, again, is in the scriptures about only the Aaronic uh, priests are to take that which is holy and consume it from the donations. Everybody knew that in that day. And that's what people sort of would have heard when Jesus said, don't give what is holy to dogs. By the way, the word dogs there doesn't mean lap dog. 
furry little friend, man's best friend. It means the dogs that roam in packs that menace the community, eat the garbage, and threaten children, and threaten the old folks as they're taking a walk in the evening. That's, that's, that's the kind of dogs he's talking about. Be careful. Don't get what is holy. Well, he's made a judgment. He's expressed that judgment. Later in this same book, he calls some of his opponents, the Pharisees. They're not all, not all Pharisees, by the way, would fit this, but many would. He calls them hypocrites, actors who can change their mask and change what they're saying and doing. They're not consistent. You can't rely on them. He calls them sons of hell. He calls them whitewashed sepulchers. He calls them blind guides. Now, Jesus has formed an opinion. He's expressed that opinion about these opponents of his. So what does Jesus say when he says, don't judge? He said, well, okay, Jesus can do that because he's Jesus and we're not. Well, I understand that, but we're supposed to follow Jesus. We're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to read the Gospels and say, this is what the life of Jesus looks like. So there are times when it is appropriate to form an opinion, to express an opinion, sometimes even a harsh one. But Jesus puts a little tether on that and in this particular text. So Jesus goes about doing that. And, and we're to follow Jesus. We're to be like Jesus. We're to be conformed to his life. We're to walk as he walked and live as he lived and loved as he loved, forgive as he forgave. All of those things we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus, which includes reading the Gospels and saying, I'm going to conform my life to what I see here in this script that God has given me through the years. Okay, here's the formula. It's a four-part formula. First of all, an admonition is stated. <clears throat> Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Ask and you shall receive. All those, all those things. And then follows a rationale. Well, why? Why should we do what Jesus has just said? Jesus gives us a reason. And we can see that here. And then Jesus gives us an illustration of that, an illustration, in this case, a kind of funny one if you really think about it. Jesus is a master of exaggeration. If your right hand offends you, cut it off, throw it away. Now, if we really did that, we have a lot of left-handed people in here. If your right hand, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, throw it away. We really did that, we'd all be wearing an eye patch, right? He's exaggerating. It's hyperbolic language. It's what we see here as well. It's It's supposed to be a funny illustration. And for people that worked in carpenter shops, it was probably really funny. And then finally, the admonition is restated in light of both the rationale and the illustration so that it clarifies the initial admonition. That's how, that's how the formula works. Well, if we go back to it, let me go back to the text itself and, and sort of restate it in a way that I think all, fits all together. Be careful how you judge. That's the statement. That's the idea. 
Be careful. It all hangs together. Why? What's the rationale? You're going to be judged and treated by the same measure that you have measured out to others. And then he gives this illustration. The speck in your brother's eye. The log in your lie. Two by four. Think something big, right? And now the restatement. What did he say at the very end? He said, okay, you hypocrite. First, remove the log from your eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the entire teaching. It all holds together. So what, what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? Let me suggest to you that what Jesus is talking about here is this. That the church, and he's talking here about the church. He says, your brother, this is insider language, has a speck in his eye. Take the log out of your own so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is insider language. This is not how we're supposed to deal with outsiders. Not how we're supposed to talk about the world around us. This is about how we deal one with another as the church. The church is to be a self-correcting body. We aren't to go out to the courts to say, would you sort this problem out with our pastors and elders? Because we don't have enough wisdom here to do it. The church is to do that internally. We're not to look to, hey, media, would you report this so that we can put some pressure on people to do this and that and buts? Wrong way to do it. The church, and by the way, that doesn't mean the pastor and the staff. That means you and me and all of us. The church together is to be a body of self-correction. But how? How do we do that? We, it is a necessary thing that from time to time, that when it erupts and it comes in the church, these can be small things, these can be large things that need to be dealt with, with wisdom, with care, with humility, with self-reflection. We need to do that from time to time. We're not to use harsh tones with each other, hard language. You fool, you idiot. Right? I've heard stuff like that in the church. You're demonic. I've heard stuff like that. Probably you have too. Harsh tones. No, not at all. Judgmental attitudes. Judgmental attitudes. No. Holier than thou disposition. Absolutely not. The key word here. It's not really expressed here, but it's, but it's implied by what Jesus says and by what other early church fathers and leaders say is no. When we're in this awkward moment where someone in the church needs correction, it is to be done with humility and care. Now, quite frankly, I would imagine that all of us would fall into that from time to time. All of us have a besetting sin. All of us have something that keeps tripping us up. You need a brother, you need a sister that you can talk to, that you can share with, who can freely share with you and say, look, I see this as a problem. And I'm here for you. 
Let's talk about it. Let's work through it. Let's deal with it. Okay? That, I think, is what this passage is all about. It's not about don't ever form an opinion, don't share an opinion, just keep it all to yourself, and everybody's going to be fine. No, the church is, is a messy place with messy people who from time to time need a brother or a sister who will lovingly and with humility come to them and help them work through whatever problem that they're dealing with. Do you need that? Am I alone, a person with frailty, with clay feet, with temptation, with drives and desires that sometimes get me into trouble? Maybe I am. I sort of doubt it, though. We probably all are. But that's why we need each other. I hope you're in a small group. I'm I'm hoping that at some point you have a brother or a sister with whom you can find that kind of conversation, that kind of deep, engaging conversation. Because we come to church and everything is fine. How are you? I'm fine. What are you doing? Are you, I'm just fine. But in fact, and I've had this happen to me before, people look at me and say, how are you really? Then all of a sudden that veneer falls off. All of a sudden I realize, you know, I, I've got some stuff going on here that's just it's about more than I can handle. And I need a brother or sister who will lovingly come alongside and, and not in judgmental tones or harsh tones, share with me the truth, live with me the truth, and be with me during this journey toward wholeness and wellness. Once again, toward shalom, the peace of God that passes all understanding. Well, there's, I think there's a wonderful um, commentary on this particular text. We find it in Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's chapter 6. It's the beginning of chapter 6. And I think Paul has been knows what Jesus has taught and now is sharing inside the church as a pastor of the church, a church that was having a number of problems, sharing with them about how now to proceed in light of... Human beings with frailties and weakness and people who slip up. And this is what Paul says. Again, my translation. My brothers and sisters, if one of our faithful has fallen into a trap and is snared by sin, you who are spiritual gently restore him. Being careful not to step into your own snare You got a log in your eye. Shoulder each other's burdens. And you will fulfill the law of the anointed one. Shoulder each other's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. That's a part of what this is about as the church. I want to go back to this passage here. And to think about the illustration Jesus gives. Now, I, I, I have to admit, <clears throat> I do a little woodworking, built some furniture and those kind of things. I can find, any, any one day, I can go out to my shop and, and find my saw. I can find my router, but I can't find my safety glasses. Any of you like that? 
I mean, I, I can find all this stuff, you know, that I can work with, but finding the thing, the one thing that I need to protect my eyes, <clears throat> pardon me, they're there, but I have to look under a lot of stuff. And there's no more important safety device in the shop than safety glasses. So says Norm Abrams, New, New Yankee Workshop. Um, probably all of us have had this experience where we get a little speck of something in the eye. Have you had that? I mean, it can be very, very tiny, but it feels like it's as big as your head, doesn't it? It feels like a rock in there. It's just a speck. And you close your, oh gosh, this hurts so bad. And give me some water and you pour water in your eyes. I've even gotten in the shower before. You know, open both of my eyes just to try to wash it out. Because so, it feels terrible. Pretty much you can't think of anything else except I got to get rid of this speck in my eye can't think about making my next cut can't think about measuring anything it's all about that I had it recently my son we were taking stuff out of his his he lives not far from from here he was taking stuff out of his attic coming down we were taking it down the stair and as such and all of a sudden I look up and there was a leg through the through the, the the ceiling he had fallen through the ceiling just one leg thank goodness and there it was. And he got kind of beat up and bruised up and everything, but he had a hole in the ceiling. And uh, as I was trying to fix it a couple of weeks later, we had the sheetrock and we had, you know, some extra wood to frame it up and that kind of thing. And I, we were cutting it out and I had glasses on, but they, they were just my reading glasses. And as you're up sawing sheetrock, a little bit of that sheetrock got in my eyes and boy, it just... Now imagine this, think about this within the context of what Jesus says. Your brother has a speck. You got a log and you're trying to help him. Does that make any sense? Absolutely not. Of course, Jesus knew a little bit about woodworking and about specks in the eyes, I would imagine. He probably had lots of them in all of his days of working, building stuff. So first, what do you do? Remove the plank, the log, the two-by-four from your own eye. Then you'll be able to help your brother. The point is about helping the brother with his issue. Helping the brother. How do you do it? Well, you got to reflect on yourself. you got to look to yourself and say, what is my issue here first? Am I really the person? So when we come to this particular text, you who are spiritual, gently restore him. Well, we got to decide who are the spiritual. You have to decide that about yourself. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you've reached some state of nirvana in this world. No. What it means is that you are on the path, you are on the journey, and that, that there is no, at that moment, critical, crucial sin that is weighing you down in this race of faith. You who are spiritual, gently restore him. And then goes on to shoulder each other's burdens. I, I love this picture. 
If you're going to correct a brother or a sister in the congregation, if you're going to help gently restore them without harsh tones, without being judgmental, willing to shoulder, you've got to be willing to shoulder the burdens. You can't just say to him, this is wrong, or her, this is wrong, you need to fix it, and I'm going to be watching. I'm afraid we do that kind of thing. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but we do that kind of thing a lot. Shoulder burdens. If a brother has a burden, we are to bear it. If a sister has a burden, and sometimes sin has become a burden, we need to bear it. We need not to be judgmental about that. We need not to use harsh tones. We need to be humble and gentle. And I need that. There's a pretty good chance you do too. So what does this look like in the church? I have, a, I have an illustration here. Somebody pulled up. Thank you for pulling that book out. Whoever did that. I've got, a, I've got a little illustration of this and how it works in the church. And I, I think it probably will hit home. Thank you. Um, a few years ago, I wrote this little book called Slow to Judge. Sometimes it's okay to listen. It's about interfaith dialogue. It's about dealing with people of other faiths. The thesis of the book basically is that you can stand up for your faith. You can defend it. You can share it and not be considered judgmental. But you have to sort of know certain things and you have to have a particular disposition. So anyway, there's a story in here that I actually stole. I didn't steal it really. He endorsed the book, so I didn't steal He knew I had this story in here. But I actually quoted it from Will Williman. He's uh, with the, was, is a pastor's pastor. He was the dean of the chapel at Duke University. He wrote a book called uh, What's Right with the Church a few years ago. It's a beautiful little book, and I would recommend to you because he's, he's, he, he's very positive about what's good about and what's right with. I mean, we can, I'm being today a little critical in, in, in the sense of trying to help us think through this text that Jesus gave us. But he's very positive, as am I, about the future of the church. Well, here's the story. The backdrop of this story is that there's a group of pastors in the community. That they meet for coffee every week, and they just have conversation. They support one another. They encourage one another. They correct one another. So the pastors are all here having coffee, and this is the conversation that breaks out. One of the ministers said that he thought that abortion was immoral. Another responded, do you mean you would ask a 13-year-old girl who got pregnant, God knows how, to raise a child by herself? Do you think that a 13-year-old is capable of being a mother? One of the colleagues said, one of the other pastors. Well, no, he responded, uh, replied, I suppose there might be in some extreme cases uh, where abortion might be justified. To which another pastor, not been in the conversation, spoke up. So what's wrong with a 13-year-old having a baby? He was a pastor of a large church, African-American fellow, black minister. What's wrong with that? He said, we have young girls who have this happen to them from time to time. He says, I have a 14-year-old in my congregation right now who had a baby last month. And we're going to baptize that baby, that child, next Sunday, he said. Do you really think she's capable of raising a little baby? Of course not, he responded. No 14-year-old is capable of raising a baby. For that matter, not many 30-year-olds are qualified either. A baby's too difficult for any one person to raise by themselves. 
So what do you do with babies? The question arose. And here's the answer. Here's the the punchline. Well, he says, we baptize them so that we all raise them together. In the case of that 14-year-old, we've given her baby to a retired couple who have enough time and enough wisdom to raise children. So they're going to raise that mama right along with her baby. So that's the way we do it. I think that's a great example of what Paul was talking about here. A 14-year-old that gets pregnant, God knows how. Some churches in some places, they would have a finger in their face. What were you thinking? What were you doing? You've embarrassed us, blah, 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 blah. And then when she looked up from her shame, there would be nobody there. That's not, that's unchristian. It's not what Jesus was saying. You who are spiritual, gently restore, shoulder the burden. And a child is a, is a burden. But the whole church says, when that child is baptized, how many of you were pledged to support this child as she grows up? Stand up right now. And people said. They all knew the story. They all know what's happening. But there's a retired couple. So, you know, our grandkids are kind of far away. It'd be great. We got room in the house. Well, we've got some resources we can bring to bear. Other people said, yeah, we'll help you too. So they all shoulder the burden. I think, and I suggest to you that when Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged, we have to take into consideration that entire pericope, that entire passage, and see it as this is what we must do, this is what we must be as the church. Not to deal with each other in harsh tones, not to be judgmental in spirit and attitude, but willing to say to a brother or a sister, I will help you share in that burden. I know that that's a burden. Whatever their sin is, whatever their trap is, whatever their misstep has been, it's easy to wag a finger. It's hard to say, let, let me shoulder that with you and let's walk together. My prayer for me and for us is that we would be that kind of person who would be willing to say, a brother, a sister has fallen. We together will raise them up. Join me as we pray this morning. Father in heaven, make us the kind of people we see in the scriptures who follow after the example of Jesus, who walk in his ways, love as he loved, forgive as he forgave. Help us to be those kinds of people. And when we fall, when we are hurting, when we are desperate, I pray that there will be a brother, there will be a sister there whom, upon whom we can lean to help shoulder that burden. 
Help us to be integrally involved so that those people would be easy and at hand. And when the time comes for us to be selfless, to be gentle, to take the speck or the log out of our own eye, help us to find the grace and the peace to be able to do so. We depend upon you. We we look to you, our God, our Savior, our rescue. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.